Father, our desperate plea is to hear your voice from Luke 15. We need you to open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our minds that we may understand. Open our hearts that we may receive. Feed us with your word. Lead us unto truth. Despite our rebellion against you, our disinterest in you, the wonder of your love still seeks us. The creator seeks the creation. The lovely seeks the unlovely. The righteous seeks the unrighteous. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we humbly pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to listen. We believe this particular story is unlike any other in ancient writing. This is not merely good literature. This is God literature. It's your literature addressed to us. We believe this text carries the full weight of your authority. It would not be any more authoritative if you were present in this place and we heard it from your lips. Now help us to receive it as such. We want to know our hearts better. And if we can handle it, we want to see it as you see it. It's in the beautiful name of Christ that we make this petition. Amen. He gave us stories. He gave us salvation. He also gave us stories called parables. These stories unpack his salvation. This story is particularly beautiful. Rembrandt painted it. Shakespeare directed it. But only Jesus could create it. It's the greatest short story of all time. Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson said the story Jesus told in this passage is the best that's ever been written. And they could spin a fairy yarn themselves. J.C. Ryle said there is probably no story in the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. It's set in agrarian village life. It's about an older man in a village who had two sons. One of them was a prodigal. Do you know what a prodigal son is? Prodigal is an old English word that we don't use today. It means wasteful. A wasteful son. Or better, a reckless son. That word doesn't appear anywhere in our story. It's just been picked up throughout the years to describe this son. He gave us stories because we need them. Stories have a way of sticking with us. Stories have a way of sneaking up on us and making us see things that were so hard for us to see before. For those of you who are not Christians, you are out and out not a Christian. This story will make you want to run to God. It reveals the shallowness of living a sinful life, the emptiness that sin brings. You are not running to the Father because you, you see sin as more beautiful and attractive. But this story will make the Father irresistible. For Christians, this story will rain grace on you. You will leave covered in it. You will leave with a better understanding of God and His grace. This story will make you want to sing and dance. 
Do one of those here. Save the other for when you get home. <laughs> for those of you who think you're Christians, but you're not, this story will shake you out of your complacency. You need more than obedience. You need a new heart. You think you are a Christian, but you are really just leveraging your obedience, thinking it will force God to give you salvation. How many people sit under the preaching of FFC every week who aren't actually Christians? May you be awakened today. Here's what we intend to do. Become immersed in Jesus' story. Discover why Jesus told the story. Leave Jesus' story with life-changing lessons. Become immersed in Jesus' story. Discover why Jesus told the story. Leave Jesus' story with life-changing lessons. Let's enter the greatest short story ever told. Verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Let's pause here. This son no longer wants to be in the father's house or under the father's guidance. He hates it there. That house is a prison and he wants to break out. He wants to escape his father's oppressive values. But he's not simply going to run away. He's going to burn every bridge on the way out. He yells at his father. I have plans that don't involve this family, this village, or you. Give me my share of inheritance now. In Hebrew culture and customs, a demand like this was tantamount to wishing your father were dead. The audience would have gasped at hearing this request. <gasps> Jesus' hearers are in jaw-dropped shock. The nerve of this ungrateful child. How hateful, how selfish. It's entirely improper for a son to demand such a thing. Tired of waiting on his father to die, he simply voices it. I wish you were dead. I want out of this family. All you are to me is an inheritance. I don't love you. I just love your stuff. The father just stands there in total shock. Tears rush down his face. This boy didn't just take his father's money. He took his father's heart, his broken heart. And he ripped it up into little pieces before stomping on it and spitting upon it. According to Deuteronomy 17, two-thirds of the father's estate would go to the elder son. One-third would go to the younger son. This is not cash. This is land and sheds and homes and cattle. In verse 3, the phrase, the younger son gathered, gathered, sonago, has the sense of turning everything into currency. In other words, the prodigal has demanded the financial value of his inheritance. He wants to cash out. One pastor said, the prodigal doesn't want to live on his portion of the land. He wants to leave the land. He doesn't want the cattle. They will slow him down. He doesn't want responsibility. That gets in the way of freedom. 
He's forcing the father to sell off portions of the family farm, liquidate the assets, land that had been in the family for years. But it's not about the land. It's about the son. The father doesn't care if the land is gone. He doesn't want the son gone. If ever you've had to surrender someone you love to their own wicked ways, you know the internal struggle this father is going through. He's giving his son over to the devastating effects of his own sinful choices. This great short story continues in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. This son leaves home with a fat wad, a thick bankroll. He sets fire on every bridge on the way out. He has no plans of ever returning. He's bought a one-way ticket out of town. He's never felt so free. Free from his father's rules and free from his father's moral handcuffs. When he arrives in the far country, everyone wants to be his friend. Wealth brings many friends. He did all the things his father would never allow him to do. He had no restraints. It was an endless college spring break. Like a sailor on shore leave with a pocket full of money. He lived the life he'd always dreamed about. The younger son had his fun and squandered the money. The word squandered has a picture of spreading out seed. He spread it around. He was generous. He bought the rounds in the pub. He picked up the gifts for his friends. He's a reckless son. He's a prodigal. Now, while the prodigal is effectively trashing his life, What's his father been doing all this time? Evidently, based on the clues provided, he's continuing on with life. He's still raising cattle. He's still working the farm with his oldest son. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. His bank account tanks and the economy tanks. He's the guy walking into the pawn shop with his Xbox one week and a big screen TV the next. When his money left, so did his friends. This little rich boy had to get a job for the first time in his life. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Finally, he found a job at an old farm. It was a pig farm. Any other farm would have been better. A crop farm, a fish farm, a dairy farm, a, a poultry farm, but not a pig farm. We all know it was a disgrace for a Jewish man to work on a pig farm. He has officially hit rock bottom. He, he's not only feeding pigs, but eating with them. He started with a fat wad, and now he's eating with fat hogs. Sin is deceptive. Sin lies about its benefits. 
It makes enough promises to trap you. It promises satisfaction, but it only increases the appetite. Sin makes promises, but hides the price tag. Sin is a demanding master. It beats you, abuses you, and still has you crawling back for more. Sin's billboard of freedom is false advertisement. Sin is slavery. The promise that the good life is away from the Father is nothing more than a mirage. The younger son sowed his wild oats and they are now producing a harvest. Thank God for consequences of sin. Thank God for consequences of sin. Don't pray for the prodigal to be safe and healthy. Pray for God to send disaster upon them. Pray that they would hate life and sin would be bitter. Whether it's your spouse who is running from God or a prodigal child or a family member or a friend who bought a one-way ticket away from God, don't pray that God will keep them out of the fire. Pray that God will heat it up. Their safety is not your number one concern. Their salvation is. 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He came to himself. This suggests that he had been out of his mind in rebellion and sin. He lived a nightmare but called it a dream. But something snapped back into place. He came to himself, but not by himself. There is no alarm clock powerful enough to awaken him to his sinful lifestyle. God awakened him to his need. This is the work of God, not the work of hogs. Filthy hogs can never awaken a man to his sin. Neither can bankruptcy, prison, divorce. If any prodigal comes to himself, it is not by himself. The calloused conscience is made tender by the Holy Spirit. The younger brother realizes what he's really been looking for the whole time is found in the father. In verses 18 and 19, he hatches a plan to restore the bridges he's burned. He has a fourfold plan. Go to his father's house. Say, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I am not worthy to be a son just make me a hired servant. There's no blame shifting. Not it was the neighborhood I grew up in. I tripped and fell into sin. No, none of that. No sob story. Only owning his sin. Friend, what drives this kid home is his father's character. He remembered how his father treated employees. He took longer to get home. Than to leave home. The road back was harder than the road away. It's harder to rebuild bridges than burn them. Every step was filled with shame. The road home was hard. The road to repentance is often hard and long. But it's worth it. Verse 20. And he arose and came to himself, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He came home. He came home needing a shower, some clothes, and probably an HIV test, but he's home. And you know he stink. Pig smelling attire, his feet bleeding, animal feces from the knee down. The father covered him with kisses. Kissed him on the corner of the lips, on the cheek, on the forehead, everywhere. He covered him with grace. See, the father didn't love him because he was clean. He was loved in spite of his filth. The father covered the filth, covered the shame. The Bible is a Middle Eastern book. The culture is completely different than ours. In this culture, if the younger son left home like this, he was dead to the family. He was dead to the village. On some occasions, they would actually have a funeral for a runaway child. He's dead. Some scholars said that if he ever tried to come back, he would be stoned right outside the village. And that's why it's so important that this father ran to him, took him in his arms. He covered him with grace because he was about to receive judgment. This boy came home bearing shame and full responsibility of sin. That's repentance. He had no terms, no excuses. He confesses without conditions and without qualifications. God, my sin has wronged you. That's real genuine repentance. That's how I came to the Father. That's the only way to the Father. Middle Eastern men didn't run. Women, yes. Boys, yes. Girls, yes. But not men. Running was shameful for dignified Middle Eastern men. This father would have had to hike up his long robe to reveal his hairy legs. Now, this is not a big deal to us because we wear shorts. But in this culture, pulling up his long robe, exposing his bare legs was unthinkably shameful. And it would have been doubly shameful to welcome back a son who was dead. I love this. The father is willing to be shamed before the village to protect the son from being shamed by the village. 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, Father, I know I'm, I, I'm disinherited now. I don't want to be a son. Just give me a slave job. This would mean that he would live with someone else in the village, not in the house with his father. So the son begins to roll out his restitution plan. He's completed the first three phases. Go to his father's house. Say, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. He never said, I'm not worthy to be a son. Make me a hired servant. He never had the chance to finish his prepared speech. He didn't say the servant part. Because the younger son didn't have any shoes. Slaves didn't have shoes in that day. 
when the father said, bring a pair of shoes, he knew he was a son again. Forget that servant part. I get my room back. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The son starts his speech, uh, 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 dad, the father shuts him up. They put the best robe on the prodigal. That would have been immediately understood as the father's robe. That boy was likely nearly naked. Filthy hogs had torn his clothes. He only has one shirt, one pair of pants. He's been wearing them for months. The father clothes the prodigal. It's not the first time he's done this. He did it in the garden. We look at Adam and Eve, the original two prodigals, and we look at this prodigal, and we ask, where is their shame? We must conclude, it has been covered. Not only did the father withhold wrath, but he also bestowed gifts. He gave the son a ring. This was a signet ring bearing the family crest. It conferred sonship in an instant. It was a symbol of authority. He could now conduct business in the father's name. He's part of the family again. He's been granted all the rights and privileges of a son. When he walked back into the village, he was completely reconciled. That pig-smelling prodigal received an embrace. This whole story is one big hug. He didn't earn the hug. The gospel is not obey and then you'll receive a hug. But rather you are hugged. So now out of love and gratitude, obey. 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. <laughs> I like this. We haven't been fattening the old boy up for nothing. Stephen Davey points out that the Greek word literally means a grain-fed calf. This was 400-plus pounds of prime beef. They didn't have deep freezers to store the meat, so this became a village-wide celebration. You invite the whole village when you kill the fattened calf. This only happened three to four times in a person's lifetime. Verse 24, for this, for this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. And is found. And they begin to celebrate. Beloved. We need to celebrate when God brings a sinner home. Tony Marita said the father threw a Jesus party. It didn't celebrate the sin or the sinner. It celebrates the father. And it's a party that never ends. We are a little more reserved around here. Serious. Somber. Reflecting on the cross. And that's good. But we also need to know how to party. How to rejoice when God brings a sinner home. It's okay to smile. It's okay to celebrate. A resurrection just happened. We can get a little excited. Jesus said at the end of the parable before this one, he said, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven is happy when a sinner comes home. 
The angels lose their mind. He got another one. That one. I want to point out that they celebrated with meat. Filet mignon for everyone. Jesus didn't say, oh, let's celebrate. Break out the salad. I don't know what you vegetarians do with this text, but Jesus ate meat. Verse 25. Now his older son, introducing a new character. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. Uh-oh, dancing. That's enough to set any legalist off. Now these were not seductive dances. There were cultural celebration dances. Verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the elder brother, was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. His brother came home and it made him mad. I just don't understand people who do not celebrate the gospel. He's grumbling over grace. Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. Notice the elder brother said, I served you. That's the word slave. I slaved away for you for all these years. That's how he viewed the relationship. Employer-employee relationship, not a father-son relationship. You, you gave him a fat cow. The tender meat that melts in your mouth. You've never even given me a skinny goat. That tough meat that you can't even pull apart with your teeth. And I want you to see, church, what he's doing here. He's grumbling over grace. The, the prodigal didn't even have to do anything to be reconciled. He, he's just reconciled. The elder brother is keeping score. Almost like he deserves something because of his behavior. My obedience deserves to receive your grace. By my scorecard, I've merited grace. He hasn't. The elder brother never understood grace. He possesses a theology of works. You owe me because I perform well. He assumes his righteousness should earn something. He has a self-salvation project going on. He's so smug and self-righteous because forgiveness seems to him so unnecessary. He can't see where he needs forgiveness. So he gives no room for anyone else needing forgiveness. Beloved, when it is time to do confession... Do you have a hard time thinking of any sin to confess? It is not because you lack sin. It is because you lack perspective on your sin. 
He's blind to his own sinful, wicked heart. Wait for it. He's a prodigal too. This isn't the story of one prodigal son. It is the story of two. I mistitled the sermon. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. It is the parable of the prodigal sons. I didn't sin against you. You're sinning right now by your reaction and treatment of the father. Your sin is just dressed up in a suit and tie. The elder brother's rule keeping simply covers the fact that he doesn't really love the father. The elder brother continues his rant in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property, let me remind you, with prostitutes, you have killed the fattened calf for him. Notice this son of yours, not this brother of mine. His speech drips with venom. I don't want to be in the same house with him. See, here's the real issue. If the younger son is back in completely, if he's a full member of the family again, that means inheritance would be recalculated. The elder brother didn't care about the younger son spending the father's inheritance. He cared about the younger son receiving some of his inheritance. The father responds in verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The elder brother had no joy when the younger son came home. Joy reflects what you love. He didn't love what the father loved. He didn't love grace. He didn't love forgiveness. He didn't love prodigals returning home. He didn't love sinners being found. He couldn't celebrate the gospel because he didn't know the gospel. In the two stories preceding this one, people went looking for what was lost. They went looking for the lost sheep. They went looking for the lost coin. But no one went looking for the lost brother in our story. Riken said that that was the older brother's responsibility. The elder brother was not his brother's keeper. Become immersed in the story. Now, let's discover why Jesus told this story. Context is important. Become immersed in the story. Now let's discover why Jesus told the story. What's the context of this story? To whom is Jesus speaking? Was this told early on in the life of Christ or near the end? Let's unpack it. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. On his way to die for the sins of men. On the way to the cross, he stops for a meal. We don't need to pass over this meal because something at the meal triggers Jesus to tell the prodigal son's story. At the table with Jesus are two groups of two. There are two groups of two. And the first group of two are sinners and tax collectors. Sinners, that's thieves, prostitutes, Gentiles, rebels. Sinners, now tax collectors. 
the Bible didn't want to offend sinners, so it created a category for these people. Tax collectors were despised in Jewish culture. They made money off the slavery of their own people. Their, their tax collecting was licensed violence. More like mafia work than office work. They were turncoats. They were traitors. They were the most hated. And look at Jesus eating with all the sinners and tax collectors. He was constantly seen in public with this brand of people. Jesus didn't sanitize their lives, but he did evangelize them around the table. That's the first group of two. In, in the second group of two are the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were the religious lost. They were always angry. One pastor said, Satan's true masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. Pharisees and scribes. Scribes were hostile to Jesus. They had a huge influence in the day, constantly trying to discredit his teaching. They were your theological Jewish attorneys who specialized in interpreting the law. What happened with Jesus and these two groups of two that prompted him to tell this story? Well, let's back up our reading in chapter 15 to verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, that's the first group of two, were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, that's the second group of two, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is a typical Middle Eastern meal held in public where no one's in a hurry and, and food is mingled with laughter and long conversation. The trouble is, not everyone is okay with Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. The word receives, Jesus receives them. It's present tense, indicating a pattern. Jesus spent lots of times eating with that group of two, and the other group of two couldn't stand it. And Jesus is tired of being accused of sin since he's the sinless one, so he tells this story to overcome that criticism. We will never understand the two sons until we understand who's sitting at this table. Jesus tells this gripping story, and he uses the elder brother to reflect the group of Pharisees and scribes. He uses the younger brother to reflect the group of tax collectors and sinners. Everyone at the table is someone in the story. Jesus is doing evangelism at the table with a bunch of younger brother types and elder brother types. And some people wonder if they have enough time to do evangelism. Do you have enough time to eat? Then you have enough time to evangelize. You're going to sit down and eat three times a day, seven days a week. Just choose one of those times and do it with someone who's not a Christian. Robert Karras wrote a book entitled Eating with Jesus Through Luke's Gospel. And he contests that every time you see Jesus, he's either going to a meal, eating a meal, or getting up from a meal. Evangelism is not light shows and parades. It can look real simple like inviting non-Christians over for a cookout. Meal time is evangelism time for Jesus. Now, please notice, 
Jesus didn't hang out with people without ever calling them to repentance. He uses this parable to call them to repentance. You don't just hang out and never talk about repentance. That's called non-evangelism. Jesus is hospitable and on mission. And by the way, this doesn't have to be around your table. Jesus had no kitchen table. He did it around community tables. When most teach this passage, they rail on the younger brother and coddle the elder brother. He just needs an attitude adjustment, a little slap on the hand. After all, he didn't run from the father. And I did the same thing early in ministry. But you miss the critical part of the story by focusing only on one son. The primary reason for the story, it seems, is to confront the elder brothers, the other prodigal, around the table. And, and I used to think that both brothers were Christians. But one went away from God for a while and the other stayed at home. But that is not what this story is portraying. They are both lost. Here's the truth. There are two ways to run from God, but only one way home. The younger brother is lost in unrighteousness. He's living the party life. He's rolling the dice in Vegas, hitting the clubs downtown, throwing back shots of Hennessy, visiting the gentleman's club. He's a party lover. The younger brother is lost in unrighteousness. The elder brother is lost in self-righteousness. He's always around the house, but never goes in. He's in the church, but he's not in Christ. He's religious, but lost. He's a, a church moralist. He's a party spoiler. And here's what's taking place in the story. The party lover and the party spoiler are both missing out on Jesus' party, a repentance party. When I preached this passage four years ago, I said, and you know what they say about a Jesus party. There ain't no party like a Jesus party because the Jesus party don't stop but I'm not saying that four years later. I've matured beyond that. Some of you say you lost your edge. Maybe. Through the story of the prodigal sons, Jesus is preaching the gospel to the religious and irreligious. Through the story of the prodigal son, Jesus, sons, Jesus is preaching the gospel to the religious and irreligious. Because Jesus preached the gospel to the religious and irreligious, I want to as well. In, in every sermon, when I apply the text, I hit both parties. Elder brother type and younger brother type. This parable, this story, functions as a grid for me. And here's what we learn from these brothers. Jesus is preaching the gospel to the religious, elder brother, and the irreligious, younger brother. Both are lost and on their way to hell. And it had nothing to do with how they spent their weekends. It had everything to do with how they viewed their father. There are two ways to run from God, religiously or irreligiously. You can run from God with a beer in your hand or a Bible, with curse words on your lips or catechisms. Now I've got a surprise for you. I've got a chart. You have not seen these in six months. But now that we have Jared here, I'm bringing charts back. Let's compare the two brothers, younger brother, elder brother. Younger brother was an immoralist. Elder brother, a moralist. Younger, free spirit. He's got an open mind. Elder, traditionalist. He hates change. Younger, he's a rule breaker. Always pushing the boundaries. Elder, he's a rule keeper. Never questions anything. Younger brother, 
lazy. Elder brother, he's a hard worker. He looks down on anyone who doesn't put in 60 hours a week. Younger brother, he's running externally from his father. The elder brother is running internally from his father. The younger, licentious, he, he thinks he has a license to sin. The elder, legalist, he doesn't think he's that bad of a sinner. The younger is an open sinner. Just look at his Instagram and you can see exactly what he's into. The elder is a hidden sinner. He knows how to erase his internet history. The younger is indifferent. The elder is unsympathetic. The younger, this is obvious, without good judgment. The elder, judgmental. Younger, always careless. Elder, always suspicious. Younger, uses people. Elder, condemns people. Younger, rebellious. Elder, compliant. Younger, he's always up late. Elder, he's disciplined. He's always up early. The younger brother was a public prodigal. The elder brother was a private prodigal. Younger, spiritually lost while at all the parties. The elder, spiritually lost while at all the church services. Both brothers live under the same roof. They could not be more different, but they both have the same need, the gospel. At our core, we can be found in one of these two brothers. We either have an elder brother heart or a younger brother heart. And we should participate in the drama by asking questions. Which are we most like? Where do you have a tendency to lean? I started out younger brother. And now I lean heavily into older brother. Which one is your son or daughter? You're going to need to know this to shepherd their hearts. Among our kids, we definitely have one younger brother type. I'm going to break the rules. And if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat them too. <laughs> we definitely have some that are rule followers among our kids as well. They have to be reminded, God doesn't just want your obedience. He wants your heart as well. The person you're discipling right now, which way do they lean? In the small group you're teaching, are you applying the text to both groups of people? If you only teach toward the younger brothers, you will have a small group filled with Pharisees. If you only teach toward the Pharisees, you will have a small group filled with licentious. The gospel addresses both, and so should you. Now, one pastor titled this, and I thought about stealing it. One pastor titled this, it's the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the Presbyterian. He, he was a Presbyterian. I didn't think I could do that. But I try to take as many shots at them as I can from the pulpit. All right. Become immersed in Jesus' story. Discover why Jesus told the story. Now leave Jesus' story with life-changing lessons. Leave Jesus' story with life-changing lessons. There are six of them. Life-changing lesson one. For younger brother types, leave your sin and run to Christ. 
You younger brothers, leave your sin and run to Christ. The younger son, after he came home, he didn't hit up those same old places he used to hit up. You know why? He started acting like the son of his father. He stopped going to those places because they could no longer satisfy him. He found satisfaction in the father. And it's old Charlie Spurgeon that helps us here once again. He says, and I quote, The prodigal left the swine trough. More, he left the wine cup. And he left the harlots. He did not go home with the harlot on his arm and the wine cup in his hand and say, I will take these with me and go to my father. It could not be. These were all left. And though he had no goodness to bring, yet he did not try to keep his sins and come to Christ. End quote. I wish you had a pastor like Spurgeon. But since you don't, I'm just going to quote him. This story is a welcome mat for wanderers. Come home. It was mercy that welcomed the prodigal home, and it was grace that threw him a party. Has sexual sin, pornography, wasteful spending, selfish living, sinful lifestyle led you to the pig pen? Your sin doesn't cancel God's love for you. Come home. You say, Kyle, I've, I've burnt so many bridges, I'm not sure there even is a way home. Is there genuine repentance for sin? Then there's always a way home. Do you stink? Do you smell? Are you dirty? Are you filthy? God isn't afraid to touch you. You aren't too dirty for him. Come experience, come experience God clothing you with a robe. A robe of righteousness. I'm so far away, Kyle. I don't even, I don't even know where to start to get back. The way home is you. Right at this moment repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone to cleanse you of the hog pen you've been living in. While you are in your sin, everything will scream, run from the Father. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. The second life-changing lesson for elder brother types, leave your entitlement and run to Christ. Leave your entitlement and run to Christ. Are you an elder brother? You are in church, but you're not a Christian. You are very moral. You are respectable, dependable, industrious, steady, obedient. Many of you sympathize with the elder brother. You know he wasted it on prostitutes, right? Leon Morris says, The proud and self-righteous always feel like they are not treated as well as they deserve. You can't earn God's grace. You can't merit forgiveness. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You, you are just as much in need of forgiveness 
as the younger brother. And you keep griping about the father going out to the younger brother. Don't you see? The father comes out to you as well. Verse 28, the father came out and entreated the elder brother. The father goes out to both sons. You can't merit salvation by being moral. Brian Chapel sheds light on the enslavement of rule followers. He says, and I quote, We need only consider the example of the Pharisees to recall that it is more than possible to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and be no holier than those whose behavior is far less moral. End quote. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. Older brothers say no to sin for wrong reasons. No, because I'll look bad. No, because I'll be excluded from social circles I want to belong to. No, because God will send me to hell. No, because I'll hate myself in the morning. You dutifully serve, but does God have your heart? It is very hard, it is very hard for older brothers to get saved. Jesus told some elder brother types in Matthew 21, 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus reserved his harshest words for elder brother types. Did you notice that Jesus never finished his story? The greatest short story of all time is missing an ending. Will the elder brother go into the party? Will he repent like the younger brother? It's a cliffhanger. It's at this moment that Jesus would put his hands on the table and look into the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes hearing the story. Will you, elder brothers, repent? Will you stop grumbling about the grace that the younger brothers receive? Will you go into the kingdom? The ending of the parable is theirs to write. What will they write? Will they join the repentance party? Or will they continue in their deadly doing of good deeds? This story, you see, snuck up on them like Jesus' stories tended to do. You may have on a three-piece suit and your modest ladylike dress, but on your best day, you're just a dressed-up sinner. And you must repent not only of your badness, but you must repent of your perceived goodness. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. Life-changing lesson number three. This is for parents of children who aren't followers of Christ. For parents of children who aren't followers of Christ, stop guilt-tripping yourselves. The father in our parable provided for his kids. He was a good father. It's sort of a paradox because you wouldn't think a good father would have a rebellious child, much less two. It seems these boys were well taken care of. 
They were loved, yet they rebelled against their father. God is a perfect father, but his kids rebel against him. Parents, pray for the heart of your rule keeper just like you pray for the heart of your rule breaker. And if the rule breaker comes home, love them, forgive them, but don't excuse the sin. Do you know why the youngest son ran? Because the father wouldn't put up with that behavior in the house. A good father controls what goes on in the house. Life-changing lesson four. This is for those who believe that repentance is no fun. My admonition to you is don't believe the lie. Repentance has been mentioned many times in our text. What is it? It's turning from sin. It's what the prodigal did. He turned from sin and ran to the Father. Satan will tell you that repentance leads to a boring life. It's no fun. When you turn away from sin, you are turning away from happiness. That's a lie. Repentance is a fountain of joy. Repentance is beautiful because it finally sees the Father as beautiful. When God calls us to repent, He calls us to joy. J.C. Ryle used to say, conviction is not the same as conversion. In other words, it's not enough for you to feel dirty. You must cry out for cleansing. When I see a repentant person, I know a resurrection has happened. That person was dead, but now he or she is alive. And I found this little jewel this week that I never discovered before. There's a third son in the story. He is the key to the story. He's not the younger son or the elder son. He's telling the story. He is God's son. Jesus Christ is how the Father runs to you. Jesus Christ is how the Father clothes you. This is not about prodigal sons. This is about the perfect son. Is it too late to change my title? The parable of the perfect son. Now I'm going to bridge to this next application. If you're a father, would you raise your hand? This dad in Jesus' story hugged and kissed his son. He was an affectionate father. Fathers, be affectionate to your children. It can be awkward at first. Be affectionate until it no longer feels awkward which leads us to life-changing lesson five. For those who have had bad earthly fathers, God is a good father. For those who have had bad earthly fathers, God is a good father. You may have had a father that never kissed you or that kissed you in all the wrong ways. Come to this father and experience the perfectly pure kisses of grace. Your father may have been abusive or absent, controlling or conniving, depressing or domineering. Deep down, your soul aches for a good father. It always has. And I plead with you to try this father. He's the good father that your soul yearns for. What makes this father in our story so good? 
What makes this father in our story so good is not how his kids perform, but how he performs for them. The last life-changing lesson. For those who have been to the far country and returned, grace makes you sing. For those who have been to the far country and returned, grace makes you sing. You see, there are two ways to run from God. But there's only one way home, and that's repentance. Neither son was able to live happily in the beginning. Neither son was able to live happily in the presence of the father. The elder son, legalist mentality, had no fun, no joy, grinding his way through being a son. The younger son, looking for joy in a bottle, in a party, or a woman. And here's what the greatest short story of all time teaches us. Licentiousness makes you sad. Legalism makes you mad. But grace makes you glad. Some of you have been to this far country and came back. Welcome home. Father, has it ever been good without you? No. Please remind us of this over and over. Father, there's not a day gone by where we've made it easy for you to be our shepherd. Oh, but grace. This grace we've just encountered, help it to fuel our evangelism and fuel our worship and fuel our song. Father, because grace makes us sing. Amen.